0: Good evening, Um, and welcome to you all. Thank you very much for coming. This is Private Eye Live, the moment when the magazine leaves the page and goes onto the stage. And it's our chance to perform some of this material in front of you, the readers. Um, I'm assuming there are a fair number of Private Eye readers here. That would be right. Can I just say an initial thank you? The readers often provide quite the funniest material in the magazine. It's true, we had a cartoon about the bipolar grand old Duke of York, who, when he was up, he was up, and when he was down, he was down. (laughs) Perfectly funny cartoon, and then a reader wrote in a letter saying, dear sir, I suffer from um, bipolar condition, and I found this cartoon absolutely uh, offensive and incredibly um, depressing. I looked at it a week later, I thought it was really funny. (laughs) That's what we have to compete against. is our own readers. So anyway, welcome here, and can I welcome onto the stage the fantastic cast who are going to perform tonight. Could you please welcome Mr. Lewis (laughs) McLeod. Miss Jan Ravens. Mr. John Sessions. And Mr. Harry Enfield! We are on the set of The Magistrate, um, but Britain has had a much more exciting court drama throughout the whole of this year. Um, And I wanted to start by recreating for you The Crucible. The Salem Witch Trial, an account of proceedings, day ninety-four.
1: The story so far. It is New England in the year of our Lord Levison 2012. <laughs> and diabolical goings on have led to the Witchfinder General, Mr. J. QC, being called in to determine who is guilty of bewitching whom. A simple girl, Rebecca, begins to denounce the good folk of the town. Do not be afraid, child. Speak only
2: the truth.
3: You gotta be
2: kidding. (laughs) Be serious, Rebecca. These are grave matters of good and evil, and lives depend upon your testimony. Rebecca fiddles with her hair and tries to look innocent.
3: Yes, indeedy do, sir, your honorship.
4: Do you admit working as a minion for the evil one?
3: I do, sir.
4: And did you see anyone else consorting with the fiend Murdoch?
3: I, sir, with my own two eyes, I did see Goody Cameron supping with the beast on many occasions.
1: (laughs) Gasps of horror sweep through the court as the reputation of an upright citizen is seriously impugned.
4: And what was the nature of Goody Cameron's dealings with the devil?
3: The horned demon wished to further his evil business upon the earth. Probably, I... I... I don't remember.
2: Be careful of what you speak, girl. Goody Cameron tells this court that you are betraying him because you loved him. (laughs) And he, to his shame, succumbed to temptation and LOL'd you in return.
1: (laughs) More gasps from court as the extent of hellish influence over country becomes clear. Rebecca speaks as if possessed.
3: It was not just Goody Cameron, sir, who danced with the devil that night at the pajama party, but Goody Osborne, too! He and Murdoch spoke
4: privily in whispers! Heavens, child,
1: where will this madness end? (laughs) Rebecca foams at the mouth.
3: I denounce Goody
2: Hunt, Goody Gove, Goody Brown, Goody Blair. It seems to me that most of these goodies aren't goodies at all. (laughs) Rather, they appear to be baddies. (laughs) Oh, ho, ho, ho. Very amusing, (laughs) Your Honor. Now, shall we burn the witch? Burn her. Burn her. Burn her. her. Thank
1: you very much. (laughs)
0: It's obviously not all highbrow literary parody in private eye. A lot of what we do is reproduce people being stupid. Um, One of our most popular columns is Dumb Britain, uh, which you will find collected together in a book that's on sale afterwards. (laughs) Beautifully done by Mr Marcus Berkman, who I hope is in the audience. These are real quiz answers from real quiz shows. And because The Weakest Link is now ending, tonight is a bit of a tribute Anne Robinson. So all the questions are from her and we're lucky enough to have Anne here.
3: So, (laughs) in ancient history Tutankhamun was king of which country?
1: Australia.
3: (laughs) What word beginning with M, named after the Hebrew word for institution, is the National Intelligence Agency of Israel?
2: Al-Qaeda.
3: The motto of the FBI is fidelity, bravery, and what?
4: Interrogation.
3: (laughs) Which architect designed Terminal 5 at Heathrow and the Welsh National Assembly Building?
0: Christopher Wren.
3: (laughs) In English literary relationships, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, who wrote Frankenstein, married the poet Percy who? Thrower. In Winnie the Pooh, what type of animal is tigger?
2: It's a rabbit!
3: (laughs) Which range of mountains running from Morocco to Tunisia is named after a character in Greek mythology? Gollum. (laughs) The name of which Canadian province is the Latin translation of New Scotland?
0: Johannesburg. (laughs)
3: What's 80% of 200? Four. (laughs) A national newspaper's name is shortened to The Indy. Its sister publication has the nickname The Cindy. On what day of the week is The Cindy published? Wednesday. (laughs) In Hamlet, a famous quotation is get thee to a what?
4: Church on time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh back to upmarket culture. Private Eye has a resident poet called E. J. Thrib, who only writes obituaries. He is in fact a threnodist, and um, tonight we're going to have a series of his poems. I'll kick off with the first one, which is in memoriam Brian Cobby, 1929 to 2012. So, farewell then, Brian Cobby. You were the voice of the speaking clock. At the third stroke, the time sponsored by Accurist will be 2.47 precisely. Now, alas, your own time is up. Thank you to E.J. Thrib. Continuing upmarket, opera. Private Eye has the most intelligent and selective opera column going. This is Opera Highlights, Radio 3, and this is what you should be listening to.
5: Tonight on Radio 3, the composer of the week is Berlusconi. (laughs) And we here at Radio 3 are bringing you his opera, La Leader*, the thieving Prime Minister. (laughs) (laughs) The robber baron, Silvio, is brought before the magistrates to face charges of tax evasion. The judge sings the classic aria, Cegelida manina*. Your tiny hand is in the till, <laughs> and the deeply moved jury convicts Silvio, singing the chorus "Mille et tre. You've stolen a million and three euros. <laughs> the judge sentences a furious Silvio to four years in jail. Silvio sings the plaintive air "Non così tutti frutti." It won't be cozy in prison without all those fruity girls. Is it the end for the robber baron? The judges are jubilant, singing Nessun Porna, no more adult actresses in parliament. <laughs> but Silvio vows to get his revenge. He consults his new political party, the Bunga Bunga Party, and his new escort, Madame Bungafly. They devise a devilish plan. Silvio will force a snap election, bring down the government of his hated rival, Super Mario Monti and return to power, sacking the judges and finding himself innocent of all charges once again. He sings the haunting, Una furtiva criminale. I am a devious bastard. <laughs> As his plans are revealed to the terrified populace, they march to his palace, the Palazzo Fornicazione, <laughs> shouting and singing, La Commedia è finita. The comedian is washed up. But are they right? Next week, on BBC Radio 3, Berlusconi's Resurrection by Gustav Muller.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to Lewis for Radio 3. (laughs) Private Eye often accused of being parochial, but we're not. We're very interested in Europe, and we cover the big financial news. The biggest news this year in the financial sector was covered exclusively in Private Eye, under the heading...
4: Germany to leave the euro. World markets yesterday went into a total meltdown when German Chancellor Angela Merkel announced in Berlin that Germany would be the first country forced to leave the Eurozone. She told a huge crowd gathered in front of the Reichstag, uh,
3: Frankly, we Germans can no longer tolerate this nonsensical system. Everyone assumes that it is Germany's duty to pay the debts of all the weaker economies in the Eurozone, such as Greece, Portugal, Ireland, Spain, Italy, France, and." <laughs> Let's be honest, all the others.
4: She continued.
3: But there is only so much money even in Germany, and we will regretfully have to do the only sensible thing and get out leaving all you useless, lazy, inefficient, spendthrift, greedy, sad, pathetic non-German people to rot in the cesspits you have deliberately created for yourselves by indulging in an orgy of crazy and reckless spending of money you have not got whilst expecting the bill to be picked up by us, hardworking, decent, honest, thrifty, and above all German, Germans!
1: <laughs> As Mrs. Merkel completed her speech to her adoring audience of 80 million people, the crowd broke spontaneously into a rousing chorus of Deutschmark, Deutschmark, uber alles. <laughs>
2: In later trading, the Euro lost 99.99% of its value and is now worth one Zimbabwean dollar.
0: Thank you to that big story. Private Eye has had obviously um, quite a difficult time in an austere year and we've gone into partnership with a number of other newspapers. We now incorporate the Nursery Times um, as a sister publication. And luckily, uh, the Nursery Times got the biggest scoop of the year, faithfully reproduced in Private Eye.
2: The Pedo Piper.
3: We had no idea.
2: By the very grim <laughs> brothers. The
1: town of Hamlin was in a state of shock last night when it was revealed that the much-loved late Pedo Piper had, in fact, been a paedophile. <laughs>
2: The Piper was well known for his eccentric, multicolored clothing <laughs> and love of popular music. He was, however, an enigmatic figure, drifting in and out of town as the fancy took him.
3: He first came to people's attention as a sort of Mr. Fix It. And when the mayor wrote to him asking if the Piper could fix it for him to rid the town of rats, he duly obliged. When he had completed the task, he merely said,
6: Ha ha, hoo hoo, ha ha. now then, now then, how's about (laughs) that (laughs) then?
2: The grateful townspeople showered him with praise, and he became a national treasure. He subsequently developed an interest in the Tynes children and took them out for a day trip with the promise of some
4: ha ha. Ho ho, hee hee, her her. Wonderful tunes for the guys and girls.
3: Incredibly, none of the townspeople became remotely suspicious, even when none of the children ever returned. They thought it was merely a joke and said,
2: Oh, it's just the piper being his normal pedo self.
1: (laughs) Now he is dead, the truth has emerged but a spokesman for the town council has refused to apologise. He said... You have to remember that
0: this was a long time ago and things were very different in the 1370s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for your tolerance during that particular sketch. <laughs> uh, it's now time to bring on um, Privatised Great parodist Craig Brown. And... Uh, One of the things that Craig has been doing is channelling the great commentator, Paul Johnson. Now, Paul Johnson, very right-wing, very respected, and is best known for having very, very firm opinions. He's very sure about them, even though they're always wrong.
7: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, This is an extract from his book titled, People Who Have Been Lucky
7: Enough to Know Me. Nelson Mandela was a funny little man with nothing to say for himself. (laughs) He wore colourful shirts and went around grinning. How did he become so famous? I put it all down to ruthless ambition. He couldn't sing, he couldn't (laughs) dance. But he knew what the public wanted. In the latter part of the 20th century, grins and colourful shirts could take you a very long way. Mahatma Gandhi... (laughs) was much fatter than he looked. (laughs) He used to wear a great big baggy loincloth size XL to cover up his great big belly. He was the fattest man I ever knew. He was notoriously pugnacious. A quick jab from Mahatma and you'd be on the floor begging for mercy. He disapproved of boxing gloves saying they were for sissies. What made him so aggressive? I put it down to all that meat he ate. (laughs) You should eat more fruit and veg, Mahatma, I told him. He wore funny little spectacles. They did nothing for his image. I told him to buy something more manly with proper horn rims. He failed to do so and was assassinated. Bugs Bunny (laughs) cut a ludicrous figure. He had big ears and protuberant teeth and generally went around with nothing on. He often had a carrot in his hand. He affected a lisp. I I used to meet him at Kingsley Martin's flat and later at J.B. Priestley's. (laughs) He once sought my advice. There are three rules for a great rabbit, I said. Never show off. Don't act the giddy goat, and if you must go into the movies, make sure you only go after the serious roles. Marilyn Monroe had no sex appeal. (laughs) But she was desperate to get on. Sometimes I would find myself sitting next to her in the beefsteak club. No one else would touch her with a barge pole. She was dowdy in the worst sense of the word. She was always grateful for my beauty advice, but it was an uphill struggle. She was a bad listener. Men never, make, never, men never like a woman who shows too much cleavage and pouts, I said. If I were you, I'd wear a long skirt in brown or beige. Stop coloring your hair, cover yourself up, and stop speaking in that silly way. I once introduced her to Noel Coward, a well-known womanizer. <laughs> He showed absolutely no interest in her. <laughs> Funny thing, but no one remembers Marilyn anymore. Her films, such as they were, are never watched. Reginald Cray had the finest manners of any person I ever knew. He was a typical Balian man. He would, always, he would always make a point of standing up when a woman entered the room, unless she was ugly or had fat ankles. <laughs> A lot of gossip has been spread about his involvement in crime. Stuff and nonsense. He was the finest Christian I ever knew, (laughs) apart from John Paul II, and he wasn't English. (laughs) Reggie always remembered to say his prayers, particularly when there was a dead body in the room. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Going round.
0: We at Private Eye do have our own columnist, we don't have to borrow. We have perhaps the finest uh, female columnist in the country, Polly Filler, (laughs) who writes about juggling that impossible tightrope between a career and being a working mummy. Um, Here, she's talking about a survey about IQ. Polly Filler.
3: So there's a new survey proving that women have now got higher IQs than men. Tell me something I don't know. Just look at the menfolk in the filler household. I mean, how many brain cells does it take to sit slumped on the sofa watching Kim Kardashian's 100 Best Thongs on Sky UK Atlantic? (laughs) I'm talking about you, useless Simon, uh, since being a bloke you're so dim you can't even work out how to use the Dyson. (laughs) It's a vacuum, Simon, (laughs) like your head. (laughs) Okay, okay, so I am being unfair, but not to my pea-brain partner. There are some exceptions to the low male IQ rule. I mean, my toddler Charlie, uh, his latest school report from St. Eupid's Free School for Differently (laughs) Gifted Children, Chair of Governors Toby Jug, um, said that Charlie was so intellectually challenging to the teachers that they thought he should be taught at home (laughs) and not come to school (laughs) ever again. Pretty bright boy, you see. But sadly, the truth is that the majority of the male species have been hopelessly left behind by the advance of us wummies, working mummies, who are smart cookies and don't just bake them. BTW, I tweeted this bon mot last week and it instantly trended amongst the Twitterati, being retweeted more times than anything by Justin Bieber, Catelyn Moran, Barack Obama, or even Stephen Fry. Bless. And you know, <laughs> you know what proves conclusively, that women like yours truly have got high cues. <laughs> Excuse me second while I just tweet that one. <laughs> um, we're smart enough to employ other women, in my case, the miserable girl Wee Ping from Xinjiang province, to do all the drudgery. <laughs> Ciao! <laughs> oh. <clears throat> the,
0: the poet E.J. Thrib again. This time, in memoriam Norman St. John Stavis, 1829 to 2012. <laughs> <laughs> Aesthete and former Minister for the Arts.
2: So, farewell then, Norman St. John Stavis. You were best known for your bitchy remarks about Mrs. Thatcher, whom you called the leaderine but you were also famous for your love of fine art, the Queen Mother, the Pope, and Victorian (laughs) bric-a-brac. The obituaries called you flamboyant, theatrical, fruity, (laughs) camp, and unmarried. I think we get the idea. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's
0: not just people who are dead. Private Eye celebrates the living. We have a a celebrity interview column, uh, second to none, I think, for uh, showing the great, the good, the famous, for what they are. It's called Me and My Spoon, (laughs) in which celebrities discuss their spoons. Um, Top of the year was Me and My Spoon with Ricky Gervais. Uh, do you have a favourite spoon?
4: Yeah, it's the one I keep on my top shelf so the dwarfs can't reach it, joke, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Do spoons feature prominently in your work? Yeah, there's a brilliant scene in my new series, Life's Too Short on Jokes, <laughs> <laughs> where a dwarf and a mong have a fight over a spoon while Johnny Depp, A-list celebrity, and Sting <laughs> have a laugh, yeah? Brilliant. <laughs> that, that sounds offensive. Ironic, <laughs> obviously, don't be thick, yeah? <laughs> if you think I'm being deliberately offensive to mongs or dwarves, you're a mong or a dwarf, A award-winning joke. <laughs> <laughs> if we could get back to spoons for a minute, please. I love spoons, yeah? Spoons are like Cole Pilkington, spastic Hmong dwarves. A war winning joke, Winning.
0: Thank you very much
4: indeed, Ricky Gervais. <laughs> <clears throat>
0: 2012 saw uh, a number of very important royal events and there was a, a national consensus that the BBC hadn't covered some of these events terribly well. Um, Private Eye is very fortunate to be given the full text of the coverage of a royal event that is coming up fairly soon. Uh, And this great national day um, will be covered by a team of presenters led by Alan Titchmarsh and including Sophie Roweth. But first, over for the day to Alan Titchmarsh.
6: Welcome, one and all, to this right royal funeral here in the truly fabulous surroundings of St George's Chapel in the age-old city of Windsor. Well, the sun is shining, oh, and it's one heck of a beautiful day. But, of course, this isn't what one might call an altogether sunny occasion, is it, Sophie Rayworth? No.
3: No. Uh, no, no, Alan, you're right. This is, at, at heart, a very solemn occasion, <laughs> um, as it's a funeral, um, to mock the death of um, uh, someone very, very special.
6: Wonderful. And... <laughs> Remind us who that very special person is, Sophie. Or should I say, was.
3: Well, it's none other than His Royal Majesty Duke Philip, Prince of Edinburgh, Alan, um, who, uh, for younger viewers, uh, he's the one who was um, married to Queen Elizabeth I. Um, But, of course, now, um, now, of course, um, very sadly, he he has died.
6: Her Royal Majesty must feel his demise most terribly. Now, how do you think she's feeling now as she prepares for this, her big day, Sophie?
3: They say she's very saddened by her husband's death, Alan, and who can blame her? Uh, But it's worth remembering, Alan, that if he hadn't died, uh, none of this would be happening today, and... um (laughs) The whole, um, the whole event would probably have had to be cancelled, which, which would have been very, very disappointing, especially for, for all the people who've come so far. Mm,
6: indeed, indeed. So, now, let's go over to Dale Winton with all, all the lovely people who've gathered outside Windsor Castle on this truly splendid occasion. What's the mood like down there, Dale?
2: Absolutely super, Alan. <laughs> How are we all doing, ladies? <laughs> Give us a right royal cheer. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done, girls. They're all determined to have a really great time here today. And now, back to you, Alan.
6: Thanks very much, Dale. Well, I'm delighted to welcome royal expert, Simon Sharma. Tell us, tell us something about King George's Chapel, Simon. It's, it's something of an iconic building. Am I right, Simon?
4: Very much so, Alan. <laughs> it was in the 13th century that King Henry. Now, the...
6: before you go, all historical <laughs> honors, Simon. I'm afraid I'm going to have to interrupt you because some sort of royal procession is now starting. So, uh, over to the woman who knows. Yes, it's our right royal fashion expert, Eve Pollard, no less.
3: Uh, yes, uh, sadly, Alan, the royals seem to be playing very safe today. It's all black, black, <laughs> black. <laughs> Princess Kate is wearing black, and so's the queen, who's the one in the centre. And um, even the lovely Pippa has opted for something very, very dark. It's black. <laughs> One longs, really, for a flash of bright yellow or lime green to cheer up the proceedings. And what about showing a bit of leg for the blokes, eh, Pippa? (laughs) Back to you, Alan.
6: Thanks, Eve. Now, I'm being told something's happening in the chapel. Talk us through it, Matt Baker. Well, Alan, this is
4: very definitely the (laughs) wow moment we've all been waiting for. Various military types, soldiers or sailors, I'd guess. Uh, Striding along, holding what looks like a great big box on their shoulders. Uh, Might that be the coffin, Matt? Well, it's hard to tell, Alan. It's got a flag of some sort covering it. uh, 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 Well, what's the atmosphere like down there? Well, not many smiles, to be honest, Alan. In fact, I'd almost
6: describe it as funereal. (laughs) Any sign of Gary Barlow yet,
4: Matt? (laughs) No, and that's the saddest thing about this occasion. <laughs> but once it's all over, I'll bet there'll be some mega celebrities lined up for the after party, uh, including, I'm told, Will I Am, David Walliams, Katie Price, and Anne Whittingham. <laughs> oh, a truly memorable
6: day, a day most of us will probably remember for quite a few hours. So, from the funeral of Prince George at St Philip's Chapel, Windsor. It's cheerio from us and it's cheerio to him. Cheerio. Cheerio, be dirty oh, Bye.
0: The poet EJ Thrib back again. This time in memoriam Fabrice Muamba,
1: Bolton footballer. So, farewell then Fabrice Muamba and welcome back. <laughs> Phew, that was close. They thought it was all over, but happily, it isn't now.
2: <laughs>
0: <clears throat> and we stay on football to go into the private section known as commentator balls. It used to be Coleman balls. These are the genuine um, lapses into gibberish uh, <laughs> Uh, expressed by commentators, footballers and other sportsmen. These are also collected together in the brilliant Media Balls, which will be on sale later, which I may have mentioned. Um, We start, of course, with football. Um, This was Garth Crooks.
6: I've just watched the replay and there's absolutely no doubt it's inconclusive.
2: (laughs) Mark... Mark Lawrenson. It must have been like the Alamo. Whatever the Alamo was like.
4: (laughs) Ray Halton. The manager needs to work an oracle. (laughs) Tony Cascarino.
6: Our man Fiorek right back is having a holocaust at the moment.
4: (laughs) Jerry Armstrong. They picked up, uh, is it 14 points out of a possible seven? (laughs) That's superb (laughs) form.
0: Steve McManaman.
4: Phew! I'm gabaflasted.
0: (laughs) Gabby Logan.
3: The smiles are on the faces, but the butterflies must be jangling for Southampton.
4: (laughs) Nick Harris. This game could go either way, or it could stay exactly (laughs) as it is now. (laughs) Ray Parler. John Terry really wears his shirt
2: on his sleeve. (laughs) Stan Collymore. I'm going to
0: put the cat amongst the feathers. (laughs) The football commentator, would you believe, for ITV4?
3: Aaron Hunt, nerves of steel, and his mother is an Englishman.
0: (laughs) Not just football this year, of course, we had the Olympics. This was Sir Chris Hoy.
1: I never dreamed I'd be the flag bearer. So, yeah, it's a dream come true.
7: (laughs)
0: The sports correspondent for Jazz FM.
3: And today at the Olympics, we have the men's cockless fours.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Matt Chilton. Oh, and the Austrians are confused. The Australians, I beg your pardon. <laughs> Mark Foster. Victory's always
2: heard more. you lose? (laughs) The BBC
0: hockey correspondent.
3: And so for the moment the Great Britain ladies hockey team is down to ten men.
0: (laughs) We can't forget a year of cricket.
1: It's Geoffrey Boycott. They've got to get him out quickly because if they don't, he'll stay in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And a great year for tennis. This was Andy Murray.
2: Yeah. I think it was nerves that made me nervous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the commentator, Jeff Tarango, talking about that great Andy Murray
4: match. Andy Murray's balls are 10 to 15% heavier <laughs> now than at the start.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: A lot of people, of course, were keen to take credit for the success of the Olympic Games. One of them was former Prime Minister John Major. And fortunately, Private Eye had an extract from his secret diary of an ex-prime minister. uh, John Major, on Monday.
8: Monday. (laughs) As the not inconsiderably successful Olympic Mm. and Paralympic Games came to an end, I was looking forward in no small measure to reading how the key to Team GB's amazing success was the funding provided to our victorious athletes by the Not- National Lottery, which of course was my idea and my most lasting achievement. At breakfast this morning, as I was eating my bowl of golden Wigos, I asked my wife, Norman, who was reading the Daily Mail, is there by any chance any reference to my own contribution to national life in that excellent newspaper? Norman gave me a rather odd, in my judgment, look and replied.
3: There is a great deal about you. You are mentioned 28 times in one article.
8: That is indeed very gratifying, I said. At last it seems that the voice of Middle England has recognised my legacy to this country. Yes, said Norman, tipping my bowl of cereal over my head.
3: You are remembered as the man in grey underpants who had an affair with that woman who's just written her biography, Curry-On Prime Minister Up My (laughs) Kyber, which is serialised over 12 pages of this appalling newspaper. The only Olympics you seem to have had any connection with are of the bedroom (laughs) variety.
8: This was not, in my opinion, either clever or funny. Oh, no. John Major.
0: (laughs) We do try and keep in touch with former prime ministers and get them to write in our pages. That includes, of course, the Reverend Tony Blair, who's chair of the Tony Blair Faith Foundation and official peace envoy to the entire universe. (laughs) Uh, This is a Christmas message from the Reverend Tony Blair. Hi. Uh,
4: Can I wish all of you in all your faith communities around the world, a happy holiday, whether your holy day is Christmas, Hanukkah, Eid, Diwali, Saturnalia, the birth of Elron Hubbard, the Jedi Festival of lightsabers, <laughs> the pagan feast of Wikipedia or whatever. Now, as you know, we at the Tony Blair Faith Foundation celebrate the whole family of faiths, all of us believers in the mystery at the heart of life. And do you know what is still the greatest mystery of all? Just how much money I have made in the last year. (laughs) Is it millions? Is it billions? (laughs) Perhaps we'll never know, certainly you won't. (laughs) But perhaps some things on earth are best left unknown. In the words of that great hymn that we all sing in church, immoral, invisible, God only wise. (laughs) Well, as I used to say when I was just a humble vicar at St Albion's, we must count our blessings, but we don't have to publish them. <laughs> Ciao. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> From
0: people who used to be in power to people who are in power now, and Rupert Murdoch, <laughs> uh, we tend to cover the affairs of Rupert through the use of Private Eye's own resident romantic novelist, Dame Sylvie Crin. Who presents a heartwarming picture of Rupert at home with his lovely bride. Um, this is the serial "Never Too Old." by Dame Sylvie Crin." In the penthouse suite of the iconic sky Newscraper building overlooking New York Central Park, the world's most powerful octogenarian was being encouraged to use the new social media by his beautiful bride from the land of the egg foo very young. Wendy. Rupert's elderly fingers fumbled as he tried to tap out a message on the tiny keys of his new Conrad Blackberry mo- mobile phone.
2: Jeez, Wendy! This thing's smaller than a koala's didgeridoo on a cold night in Kookaburra Creek.
0: Oh. He squinted at the screen through his Pierre Moron fashion spectacles, hoping for some soothing words of sympathy, but none came.
3: You Twitter-Lupert, you show world you not senile old man who let dim sun ruin everything!
7: Oh.
0: <laughs> Cried Wendy, and with an elegant pirouette and reverse kick, the agile martial arts expert decapitated the stunned mannequin labelled Tom Watson MP. <laughs> that had been Rupert's surprise Christmas present to her.
2: Struth, wind! I don't know what I'm bloody doing here, am I? Tweeting or retweeting or what? At moment
3: you're taking picture of floor. <laughs> what? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the elderly tycoon sighed as he punched more buttons. If only his former flame-haired chief executive were here. Rebecca
2: was always so good at the new technology. <laughs> Couldn't I get Becky to do this bollocks for me? I mean, I'm paying her enough to sit around on her ass doing diddly squat. We don't no talk about La Becca in this house!
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the icy stare of the dragon lady could have frozen a sausage on a Bondi Beach Barbie.
3: <laughs> you concentrate on sending tweet, Lupert. you tell followers how you're having a nice cup of cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> all
2: right, all right, my little rice noodle. I'm on the case.
0: A worried Rupert concentrated once more on the mini keyboard. The Twitter sphere would surely expect global insights from a man of his international stature, not just something about drinking cocoa. He hit a button and then suddenly the speakerphone
1: activated and a familiar
0: voice rang out across the New York penthouse suite.
1: Uh, hello. Uh, th- th- this is uh, Hugh Grant. Uh, 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 you're through to my voicemail. Uh, ju- just, just, uh, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, leave, uh, leave a me. Oh, fucky, fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> uh, uh, beep.
7: Oh.
0: <laughs> Rupert's blood froze, and in the ensuing silence across the city, a police siren wailed. Sylvia Green. Very Another poem from E.J. Thribb. This time, in memoriam, Kim Jong-il, North Korean leader.
4: So farewell then, Kim Jong-il. You were Kim (laughs) Jong-il. Then you were Kim Jong-very (laughs) ill. Now you are Kim (laughs) 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 Jong-dead.
0: It's time for Mr Craig Brown to return Um, and this time he's channelling that great philosopher, Alain de Botton. (laughs) Alain is of course a philosopher to the common man who makes our everyday experiences richer and deeper. Alain is a great experience on travel and in this section he's talking about buses.
7: I've never wavered in my certainty that the old-fashioned bus is ill-designed for its purpose. It may be good at getting us from A to B but what can it teach us about love? <laughs> at the moment, when we buy a ticket from a ticket seller, let's call him Alphonse, we, have guaranteed, we are guaranteed a journey to a given destination along the bus route. But how much more valuable that ticket would be if it guaranteed us the right to love and be loved? Instead of asking Alphonse for a ticket to Mitchum or Barnstable, we would ask him for a ticket to the world of love. For an agreed sum, Alphonse would issue us with a ticket, and we would then climb aboard a given bus, the love bus, ready to be transported to a world where wisdom and tenderness are valued more highly than money and status. The error of modern bus travel is to overlook the most profound needs of its passengers. Correct in so many ways, Reginald Varney of On The Buses (laughs) might might nevertheless be criticized for neglecting his passengers' deepest longings. He would ask them where they wanted to go, but never why. (laughs) The ideal bus route would substitute the usual dull and dispiriting destinations for beautiful but forgotten places in the human heart. So when working people, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, (laughs) hopped onto their bus, they would be transported not to Kings Cross, Islington and Stoke Newington, but to the wonder-filled new lands of joy, hope, and understanding. And our bus would not run on petrol, no. It would run on happiness. And then we would find the answer to the question we're all asking, who can take tomorrow dip it in a dream, separate the sorrow, and collect up all the cream the candy man can, the candy man can, the candy man can, because he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good.
0: (laughs) We do philosophy at Private Eye. We also do theology. Earlier this year there was a historic find, um, some ancient 4th century papyrus which, there was a fragment which appeared to suggest that Jesus was married. Um, Private Eye's own academic, uh, Professor Carol Spart, uh, was convinced that this was absolutely the case. And in an academic piece which she wrote for the Eye, ten telltale signs that prove Jesus was married, she made the case. These were the ten telltale signs.
3: One, hopeless at shopping, too few lobes and fishes. <laughs> Two, despite being trained as a carpenter, never put up any shelves. Three, never seen smiling. Four, carried <laughs> weight of world on shoulders. Five, knocked tables over, causing mess for others to clean up. 6. Spent last night out with mates. 7. Told the same old parables over and over again. 8. Thought he was God's gift. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Now, under your seats, you'll find a free complaint form um, to the editor of Private Eye. It reads, Dear Sir, you are a pathetic hypocrite. You wouldn't do this piece about Mohammed, would you? And the answer is, of course, no. (laughs) So, moving on rapidly. (laughs) From the Sublime to Brian Sewell. uh, We're very fortunate to have Brian Sewell writing a short piece for us for
2: Christmas. Now, Christmas rears its sluttish little visage. (laughs) I recently paid a visit to Santa's Grotto at a department store in Oxford Street. Upon easing myself onto the visibly yearning knees of the florid, ill-shaven claws, I became steadily more aware of the pure bile of jealousy and hatred oozing from the paws of the children, asinine and presumptuous, who howled and wailed in a monstrous queue, stretching back some several hundred yards. <laughs> it was upon asking Clause for a modest present of cash in hand, <laughs> notes only, that he revealed himself as a vile, arrogant and ignorant old martinet, with hands ready less to dip deep into his own pockets than into mine. (laughs) (laughs) Bah! Away with you, you foul gushing taradiddle, you loathsome bordroon, I said, perfectly reasonably. But these people have no manners, no manners at all, the worthless, puce-faced ogre accordingly summoned an obese security guard and together they manhandled me out of their dreary little shop while their underage hangers-on continued with their bawling and their blubbering. I can think of only one Christmas I ever enjoyed and that was in the late 1950s when as an undistinguished grandfather clock struck midnight with a shrill insistence. I found myself being ignominiously, but not unpleasurably, (laughs) gang-banged. Up the rear by three battalions of horse guards and off-duty policemen, 11 pipers piping, 10 lords a-leaping and the admissions committee of the Courtauld Institute. Thank you.
0: The poet E.J. Thribb again. In Memoriam, Robin Gibb of the popular singing group, the Bee Gees.
3: So, farewell then, Robin Gibb. Tragedy, yes indeed. Staying alive, sadly not. Too much heaven, we do hope so.
0: (laughs) That's it from E.J. Thribb. thank you very much. <clears throat> it's not all dead people, obviously, the eye's interest. We are interested in the living and the, those who live life to the full. And no one lives it fuller than the Mayor of London um, and our next Prime Minister. <laughs> Give a few milliband years in between. Um, but in the eye, we have messages from Boris Johnson every week, and this one was a particularly serious and important
1: message from the Mayor of London. (V: I- did... <laughs> uh, Cripes I expect you've heard about my new baby. Ah, oh. but wait, oh. hold, 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 <laughs> hold your horses. Uh, th- th- this time I'm not referring to yours truly being caught with his trousers down. And getting some totty up the duff. No, 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 ah, no, Bozza, Bozza. bozza has been as good as gold. Well, this week anyway. (laughs) Uh, 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 And Percy Pecker is well and truly grounded, if you, uh, uh, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Yes, it's important. Uh, So where was I? Yes, ah, Boris's new baby. It's it's going to be noisy, smelly, and keep everyone awake at night. Ah, yes, it's an airport! Ah, yes. And <laughs> uh, 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 not just any old airport. It's, 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 it's an airport in the middle of a river. Classic. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the boffins tell me that uh, the Boris Island is a corker of an idea. Uh, flying Jolly Foreigner and his missus into Jolly Old Blighty in the millions to, to uh, unload all their oodles of dosh into our waiting pockets. Uh, it's fantastic. Makes perfect sense, uh, and and it's a win-win situation. Uh, I, I I I I I win as mayor, and then I become prime minister. Ah. Uh, but, but no offence to Dozy Dave, who's doing sterling work. Sterling work, annoying, annoying, annoying the frogs and squareheads. But uh, if, if, if if only he had this sort of Boris-style vision, uh, he he wouldn't look so much of a chump. Um, uh, Toodle pip, uh, Boris. Ah, oh, bah, bah, P.S., P.S., bah, oh, no, I forgot. I forgot, I forgot to mention the other big plus about dumping a double-sized Heathrow right on Father Thames. Poor, uh, plane loads of fruity stewardesses. <laughs> yes, ah, yes, jetting in and needing a good night out with someone who knows London rather well. Uh, who, who can show them a good time? Oh, yes, Quakey. oh, down, Percy, down, oh. oh, blood's draining from my head, oh. oh,
3: Brilliant.
0: And now Craig Brown comes back um, to give us the most important, the most successful, the most influential, the most most book of this year and it's not the Bible or indeed the Koran. It is Fifty Shades of Grot.
7: <laughs> <sighs> Holy shit. I skip naked into the kitchen, my body <laughs> bursting with an insatiable craving. But for what? My body craves one thing and one thing only. Something warm, gurgling, moist. Yes, A cup of tea. (laughs) Jeez, I need it badly. The kettle is electric. I glide my forefinger over its Bulbous protuberance. I press it upwards, upwards. It comes alive in my hands. It lights up and leaps into action, quivering, growling, simmering, then bubbling as, oh, 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 yes, yes, it comes to the boil. As the kettle moans and howls, my naked body knows instinctively what to do. The pressure is uncontainable. It wants to detonate. Together, the kettle and I rush headlong towards the kitchen cabinet. My needy, needy fingers caress the box marked PG Tips. <laughs> I dive in and cup a tea bag, oh, so tenderly in my hand, before inserting it firmly but gently into the empty vessel that lies beseeching, yearning, avid below. <laughs> I tighten the handle of the kettle in my palm and will not let it go. I squeeze and squeeze, I lift it, and it is powerless to resist. I tilt it slowly at first, then faster, 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 with ever more urgent tilts. Deep within its body, something cries out for release. Ecstatically, the kettle empties itself into the cup, pounding the defenseless tea bag over and over again. It shudders violently against the hard, unforgiving surface of the porcelain. Within seconds, the bag is left drained and satiated. (laughs) Aromatic, aromatic liquid spilling uncontrollably through its moist perforations. One lump, two lumps. They plunge in and breathlessly dissolve. Inside, something stirs. My teaspoon. I moan. He groans, he groans, I moan. He moans, I groan, I groan, he moans. How much longer can we keep this going? I groan, moaningly. <laughs> Only another 500 pages and we're done, he moans, groaningly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Time for a very quick round of Dumb Britain before the finale. Back to Anne Robinson.
3: Which country fought Germany in the Franco-Prussian War?
2: Was it Spain?
3: In the 1960s, one of the figures at the centre of the political scandal known as the Profumo Affair was Christine who? Hamilton. (laughs) Catherine of Braganza, who was the wife of Charles II of England, popularised the drinking of which beverage in England?
1: Uh, Tequila Sunrise.
3: (laughs) Which four-letter word is derived from the Arabic word for an upholstered seat with back and arms for two or more people?
2: Chaise oh, long.
3: Which of these three, heaven, hell or purgatory, is the subject of Dante's Inferno?
4: Towering.
3: Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown compared himself to which literary character from Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights?
0: Charles Dickens.
3: This batsman was born in 1980 and made his debut for England in 2005. Kevin who? Costner. (laughs) Gilbert and Sullivan's opera The Yeoman of the Guard is set in which London landmark?
2: Canary (laughs) Wharf.
3: After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples on the road to where? Emmaus or Amarillo?
4: Ooh. Ah. Oh. Amarillo.
3: The humorous verses, oh, I wish I'd looked after me teeth and they should have asked me husband, were written by which British poet?
0: Tennyson. (laughs) Thank you, we now have to be very rapid in our um, closing uh, uh, piece. We have, we're going back to the Olympics and I mentioned at the very beginning we're very grateful to letter-writers, two in particular, uh, one who writes frequently to The Guardian, uh, Mr David Spart, and the other who writes to The Telegraph, Sir Herbert Gusset. In this case, they were both writing about the Olympic opening ceremony. We'll start with Dave Spart's letter to The Guardian.
4: I was utterly sickened by the feeble feel-good propaganda of the so-called opening ceremony at the Olympic Games, with its uncritical support for the British establishment in all its forms. From the singing of right-wing Christian anthems such as Jerusalem and Abide With Me to the delight of the organisers clearly took in showing heroic and downtrodden workers being beaten up by smiling, top-hatted capitalist bosses, every box was ticked. Totally predictably, the Queen, representing an effete and totally outmoded monarchy, was allowed to rehabilitate herself via attachment to celebrity culture in the shape of James Bond, who instead of being exposed as a torturer and mass murderer for the state intelligence apparatus, was portrayed as a fawning lackey of a totally decadent feudal system. And most disgraceful of all was the attempt to glorify the NHS without a single reference to the fact that it has collapsed thanks to Tory cuts. And when the right-wing organisers of this sickening travesty of the real people's history of Britain, led by Mr Frankie Boyle had the nerve to show us the figure of Mary Poppins clearly representing Margaret Thatcher as the hero of the story, I thought I was going to be in need of a visit to one of those hospital wards, which, thanks to her, have all been totally and utterly (laughs) closed down. (laughs) Your stage, Bart.
0: Sir Herbert Gussett writing to The Telegraph,
2: Sir, am I alone in finding (laughs) the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, a totally disgraceful travesty of the history of our once great country? (laughs) Only the most rabid Marxist, such as Mr. Danny Boy, could have dreamed up such a twisted communist caricature of the events of the past 200 years. It was all very well to have begun with milkmaids and sheep dancing around the maple and playing cricket with Morris dancers as they sang Jerusalem, but we were then treated to the spectacle of this rural idyll being destroyed by a gang of evil top-hatted capitalists polluting the countryside with their vile factory chimneys to such an extent that the nation's children became violently ill and had to be cured by the national (laughs) health service led by mary poppins (laughs) 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 Ah Wolf Wolf <laughs> We then saw all this good work being threatened in turn by the figure of Lord Voldemort, who was clearly intended to be Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> yes. Worst of all was the deliberate act of treason committed against Her Majesty the Queen by forcing her to jump out of an aeroplane (laughs) at the age of 86, no doubt in the hope that she would fall to her death, allowing the Olympic organizers to declare Britain as a socialist republic, (laughs) headed by its new People's President, Ken Livingstone. (laughs) All in all, It was five hours of the most turgid, agitprop (laughs) I've ever been forced to sit through since the death of the late Joseph Stalin. I remain, sir, yours, utterly disgusted, Herbert Gussett. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. I'm sorry we have overrun our time, I'm sure the (laughs) National have got better things to do. Um, But I would like to thank you very much for coming and could I thank you, could I thank once again my fantastic cast. (laughs)